What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I host the French Pop Invasion. We're going to talk to the members of the band Phoenix and review the latest album from Air. Plus, it'll be my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. That's some of the music from the Beatles rock band, the new video game that we talked about just a few weeks ago on the show with one of the forces behind that at the Massachusetts-based Harmonix Company. Now we have the numbers. Big news here. The Beatles rock band in its first month sold nearly 600,000 copies. So it was a big month for music video games because it was followed closely by Activision's entry in the music video game market, uh, Guitar Hero 5, which sold nearly 500,000 copies. So, Jim, uh, even though video game sales had dropped off earlier this year, just like everything else in this uh, tough economy, September was a big month, and 72% increase over video game sales a month ago. So the music genre in the video game market is really bouncing back heavily. Whereas compact disc sales continue to fall, the music industry is really having a great run supplying music to these video games, and there is more help on the way. There's going to be a hip-hop element in the video game genre now coming out (laughs) called DJ Hero, and then there's going to be a teen-oriented version of these video games called Band Hero that's going to be introduced. Mr. Cott, I'm sorry to subject you to that, but that is uh, Little Wayne with Lollipop. Not the song, it's the ringtone. Uh, you know, personally, cell phones drive me crazy. I hate when they ring with a regular ring. I really hate when they ring with a dumb pop song. I wish I could just throw my cell phone and everyone else's into the Chicago River. But ringtones are a huge business. Industry analysts who watch the cell phone carriers say that along with text messaging, downloads of ringtones now account for 60% of that multi-billion dollar business of all these people who are forever selling us cell phones. Eager to get more of a piece of that pie, ASCAP, the American organization that represents uh, songwriters in America along with BMI, Mm -hmm. went after two of the biggest cell phone carriers, Verizon Wireless and AT&T, in separate lawsuits. Now, you download a ringtone, you know, like Little Wayne's. He is paid, or he and his record company are paid, 24 cents for that download. It's already like a songwriting royalty. You're Mm -hmm. getting paid once. ASCAP contended he should get paid twice. Why? My cell phone is on. It might have Black Sabbath on it. It goes off. You hear a little paranoid. Right? Okay. 
that's a concert, according to ASCAP. <laughs> the fact that you overheard Black Sabbath ringing on my silly cell yeah. phone, that they should be paid a performer's royalties. The judge who heard the case threw it out. She indicated that she will be uh, no more kind toward the suit against AT&T and that this is pretty absurd. ASCAP continues to say it will fight for performers' rights well, wherever it can. It's a, it's amazing. I think some of these performance rights organizations do go a little far. There was a great story out of England where a little store was prosecuted for playing the radio. The Performing Rights Society of England warned the store, said you've got to turn that radio off or else you're going to have to pay performance royalties. This happens all the time in America, too. A little barbershop is playing opera on the radio. They come in and they say you're going to have to pay because you are entertaining your customers. Mm-hmm. So the village store says, you know, we can't afford that. They turn the radio off. But one of the clerks at the store, Sandra Burt, 56 years old, huge music lover, couldn't stop singing. So <laughs> entertaining the customers as they walked in, she was singing Rolling Stones songs because that's the way she passes her time during the day. Well, the Performing Rights Society came back to the store and said... Mrs. Burt, you're going to have to shut up or we're going to have to charge you performance royalties for, for, for singing these songs. And she said, you you got to be kidding me. Really? Of course. The story created a, a somewhat of a national furor in England. And uh, the, the Performing Rights Society, to its credit, realized the absurdity of what it was trying to do. They finally sent her a letter of apology and a bouquet of flowers. And they said, we hear you have a lovely singing voice and we wish you good luck. End of story. But uh, a real indication of how these performing rights societies are trying to milk every penny anywhere they can out of anybody they can in order to get songwriters paid. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready now, go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoe. Well, you can do anything but take me over my blue suede shoe. Well, you can knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the place. Well, do anything that you want to do, but not, uh, honey, lay off them shoes. And don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Well, you can do anything, but take me over my blue suede shoes. Let's go, cat! Greg, Elvis Presley's blue suede shoes did not go at a recent auction, <laughs> but a red ultra suede shirt that he wore once for a photo shoot was sold for $28,000. People who listen to the show know that from time to time we like to uh, do short stories about some of the more absurd pieces of rock memorabilia that are up for auction. You so far have missed your opportunity to buy me the original Moog synthesizer used by Keith Emerson mm-hmm. and John Bonham's gong. Yeah, I-, I won't forgive you for that one. I really, you know, I, I like Elvis, <laughs> but I don't want anything that went at this auction. Chicago Auction House had uh, a collection that came from Gary Pepper, who was the president of a Presley fan club, and then became friends with him. So the stuff that they auctioned off included a telegram, a birthday wishes that Presley had sent to Pepper that sold for $1,400, photos from uh, Elvis's uh, 1967 wedding, mm-hmm. four grand, a white cotton shirt with the EP monogrammed on, 52000 but the strangest item, $15,000 for a lock of Elvis's <laughs> hair. I don't know if it had the brill cream on it or not. The story takes a stranger turn. Hard to get stranger than selling somebody's <laughs> hair, right? Uh, with two cousins of Pepper stepping forward and suing their late cousin's caretaker and the auction house, saying that they didn't authorize this sale, the total of which was more than $300,000 brought in. And now all those people who spent all that money for all that Elvis, it's all uh, frozen until the lawsuit is resolved. So, you know, if you won Elvis's hair, hang tight. You're going to have to wait for it just a little bit longer. 
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song 1901 from the French pop band Phoenix. If you've turned on your TV at all in the last few months, you've probably heard that song on a TV commercial, which is no comment on the quality of the album from which it came, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, a breakthrough album for this quartet from Versailles, suburb of Paris. Uh, They've been kicking around for about a decade. Three previous albums made a little bit of a dent in the American market, but with songs like 1901, uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix is definitely this band's big breakthrough. In the matter of months, we have seen them go from playing clubs in America to four and 5,000 seat theaters that they are selling out. And this has been the decade of French pop. Uh, We've seen breakthroughs by bands like Daft Punk and M83 and Air, whose new album we're going to be reviewing later on in the show. But right now, Phoenix is the band of the moment. I think the pop album of the summer in many ways. And now here we are into the fall, and it's still going strong. And uh, we had them by a few yeah, weeks ago. absolutely, Greg. Despite these guys being on top of the world, they were just thrilled to come by. And uh, we were geeking out, talking <laughs> all sorts of obscure French music with them afterwards. It was a real pleasure as they stopped by to uh, chat with us and perform. We are here with the four members of Phoenix, Thomas, Deck, Laurent, and Christian. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All four of you in uh, kind of a stripped-down acoustic mode today. It, it's interesting because I think the band has made four albums where just two and a half months ago you guys were playing clubs and now you're playing theaters four or five times that size. It's been a, a whirlwind year for this band. But it started out relatively modestly, right, Thomas? It was... Uh, what was the vision of the band when you guys got together in the, back in the 90s in, in France? Um, well, we really started as a studio band. Well, we grew up in Versailles, which is very close to Paris. We There was not an audience. I mean, we, we wouldn't even uh, think about playing live because there was no venues and there was no... And we just couldn't relate to uh, a lot of people in Versailles, which is like a cult in a way. Uh, it's a very strict city and a very... Hmm. Uh, it makes you feel different, which is nice, I guess. That's the best gift it gave us. But uh, So we started and we played in the studio um, for, I don't know, many years. And we were really fascinated more about being producers than and songwriters than, than playing live first. So uh, confined initially to the studio, early mentors uh, early on were the guys in air. Uh, another studio outfit, was that a model for what you wanted to do? Not really. It was more uh, a coincidence. Hmm. They are, they came from the exact same neighborhood as as we do, but we didn't really know them. They were like three years older, which is a lot when you're yeah when you're a kid, and they were signed to the same label as us. And we really loved their fir- their first EPs. They were really good and really uh, they they shared the same vision as as we do. So when they needed a band for you know, playing some radio shows, 
they found us. We were on the same label. We are writing our first album, so it was more a coincidence, a very good one. Well, Laurent, when you say you shared the same vision with Air, what do you mean by that? We kind of shared the same records, I would say. We had the same uh, record collection, basically. I think it's this, the thing that unites all the French bands, you know, like Daft Punk and Sébastien Tellier, maybe you know him. Mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. uh, this record we really cherished. Some of them were French, uh, very few, actually, Serge Gainsbourg mainly. Yeah. But we also had this cult of, you know, uh, American and English music and German music too. So, uh, yeah, we're, it was really a thing about records. Can you name a couple that were like, big for you at that point? Uh, from this period, it was more like My Bloody Valentine's and stuff like that. And from a lot of records from the past. You know, we were in such a, living in such a boring city that records <laughs> were really the only thing we could, you know, feel passionate about. So we had this cult for some records. We, we could, you know, stare at the covers for hours. Mm -hmm. You know, here you, you, you go out and there's a jazz club that's been there forever. Mm -hmm. When we go out, we have these beautiful buildings, but uh, there's no one in, in there. It's only <laughs> <There's> no soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> museums. Gee, really how boring to live in France. Empty, empty <laughs> yeah. uh, Versailles is very, very strange because it's, you know, it's living in its past. Yeah. So I guess it really shaped us in a very weird way. Uh, well, if, if we can generalize as rock critics, which is one of the things we do, uh. Uh, <laughs> although although there are huge differences in the sounds of, of Air, of Daft Punk, of Phoenix, I, I think it all shares this fondness for psychedelic uh, music in the sense not of having any connection to drugs, but in creating this really unique world in the space between your headphones. Yeah, uh, I think that the fact that we, we are really listening to records more than live bands and that yeah. for us music is this particular way, you know, record sounds. We don't really like a guitar, but more the way uh, a guitar sounds on a record, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it, it's a very important thing for us, you know, the way the, the membrane of the speaker is vibrating. That's mm -hmm. what we are into. with the, yeah, we're into that combination that really creates something. You know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I was reading some stories about you in the early days, and apparently you did get out and play a few shows. You, there was this sense of we're not really sure what kind of a band we're going to be, but you know, doing everything from Hank Williams covers to, to well, Prince. Well, right? We're still not sure which kind of band we're going <laughs> to yeah, be. Yeah. Uh, but yes, it's true. The beginning was, I mean, it was a marketing nightmare for record companies. <laughs> we were just uh, the worst band they could... Growing up in Versailles, is, there's nothing, there's no scene there. So you don't need to belong to, uh, you know, you're not with the goth kids or you're not with the, you're, you're just the only kid that's playing music. And what's nice is that, that we, we kind of enjoy how we do records more than when we play live. So we, it, it's all about the records in the end, you know, it's the thing that's going to last. And, uh, mm -hmm. and the live show came uh, crescendo. I mean, it was... In the beginning, we were just the worst live band. And, you know. <laughs> a long way you've traveled, though, yeah. over the course of Thanks. four albums and, and an American tour that's selling out many of the shows in four and 5,000 seed venues. And now uh, we've got two of you here with acoustic guitars and we have a small keyboard. You're going to play something for us, right? Yes. That's the way we do. Uh, that's kind of the way we do our demos in a studio. So this We're, is how it would start in the rehearsal space? Yeah, yeah. Basically, yes. So can you set up uh, set up the song for us? What, yes. what are you going to play? Um, I think Listomania first. Ah, 
go. So stuff listomania from phoenix from uh album number four wolfgang amadeus phoenix absolutely one of the songs of the year isn't it greg uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> where to go i had no idea 2016 was the price to pay <laughs> a messed up kid Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, Jim and I are going to talk more with the French pop band Phoenix. And later on, we're going to review the new album from fellow Frenchman, Air. Then it's Jim's turn to drop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to the album version of Listomania, the hit single from our guests, Phoenix. It's not often that you hear a great pop song inspired by a 19th century composer, so I had to ask uh, the band leader, Tomas Mars, about the song's Hungarian namesake. A listomania, think let's see it grow, like a ride, like a ride, oh, not easily as a fan of history, I have to ask, I, I, I've read that you were inspired in part by the notion that Franz Liszt in the 1800s was inspiring a sort of, you know, pop lunacy among his followers and that that was a jumping off point for this uh, song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, what we like in lyrics in general is that they're very cryptic and very, uh, because I guess it's the way we discover music. For us, being 13 or 14 and listening to um, English American and even Serge Gainsbourg, which is very cryptic when you're 13. Uh, yeah. Mm. We, <laughs> yeah. You we, have to be a little older to understand yeah. what he's going on about. Yeah. It's very, um, it's just, you think that those guys are, are telling you about your life. And I think that's the thing we we like to recreate. And mm. um, so the songs are a mashup of a lot of things. And Franz Liszt is one, he's basically one of the first uh, rock stars. He's uh, yeah. He was, he would lose credibility because he would get, girls and throw his green gloves at the crowd and yeah uh, and, uh, well and that's a vibe that that was similar to uh you, you have a relationship with the the brilliant american film director sofia coppola uh, that's what she did when she told the story of marie antoinette too was kind of trying to look with a bit of a modern eye towards history right sometimes i wish we could combine both and that's what we we're trying to do because in europe we have this this history which is amazing and great for inspiration and a lot mm. of things but the problem with an old continent is that you're not as free as you you want. You know, you it's really hard to move things. For instance, we played in Denver in Red Rocks the other day. And just the fact that you built an amphitheater and you destroy the rocks and you build an amphitheater <laughs> is something that's <laughs> unthinkable in Europe. See, and that might not be such a good idea in America, though, you know, really. I mean, it's, for me, I love this idea. I yeah. think it's great that you have this freedom in your building you know the present is very important well it's interesting because you do reference the past a lot and you were talking about it earlier about being around all these beautiful buildings and and how that can be both a plus and a minus in some ways so referencing these these historical references and even just the song titles 1901 or armistice or versailles or can you sort of take a wider lens on this and see has that had anything to do with, uh, frankly, a, a, a pretty explosive burst of activity in the French music scene in the last te- decade? I mean, just a lot of cool bands seem to be coming out of France lately. Is that tying in at all with some of this historical context that you were um, talking about earlier? Maybe, yeah. I think the the main factor is the fact that we could, in the mid-90s, we could technically record an album in our bedroom. So that's what we all did, actually, all those bands. Because before of that, you had to find, you know, a record company and nobody really cared in France and nobody thought it was p- possible to talk to the world and not ju- just the French market, which is very, very bo- boring and sad. Hmm. So when we when we were able to do it, we did it. And then, you know, we had to uh, to have a global vision, you know, so hmm. we, we took the time. We had time, you know, when when you're good in France, you know, nobody cares. So you have time to develop, you know, here when you're good. 12 someone is gonna find you <laughs> and put you on tv <laughs> is, is that why you chose to sing in english 
We chose because uh, we had this, you know, romantic vision of pop music, you know, as something uh, global, you know, and uh, we knew that the language of music, of pop music, was English, you know. It's like when you you want to sail, you don't you don't go to Switzerland, you know. We <laughs> you you want to go to the Atlantic Sea and the Pacific, and mm-hmm. we wanted to to go where things happen. Mm-hmm. So it was just yeah, this a conscious move to. Um, to have a good life. <laughs> There's n- no resentment about that, that, that you have to be taken on the terms of, of the uh, British and, and American pop charts, and you can't just be, you know, we're a French band. <laughs> no, it's so, to us it's just a convention. Mm. Uh, we use the l- English language in a b- weird way, I guess, but we talk with a French mentality, I guess. Yeah, mm. So we're suckers over here for that, Laurent. You know, <laughs> you can talk in that French accent all day and we'll just eat <laughs> it up, you know. <laughs> okay, yeah, we noticed that. <laughs> but, but Laurent, you were talking about, you know, forming this band in the mid-90s and the scene was very different then. Uh, there was a sense of w- what is happening in France. We've never heard of any of these bands and, you know, the last 10 years obviously quite a lot different. What, what changed around that time? Was, why all these bands now? Yeah, so yeah, the the I technical the aspect studio, yeah. is very very important. It's crucial. The fact that we were free to do a record, you know, mm-hmm. without compromise and without you know being you know even sure it would come out, but we could do it. So the technology opened. Technology it up. was a key factor. And then there maybe when we are able to do it, there's uh, this tradition in France of you know aesthetical movements. Maybe we have that in our blood. The fact we we know that. You have to build a, like a aesthetical vision, you know, like the Nouvelle Vague cinema and all the things. And it was al- always based on, a, you know, vision of art in general, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. No, we are, we 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 believe we are we are like a secret society in France <laughs> of very few people that believe that music is like, you know, even pop music is one of the highest forms of human uh, activity. <laughs> Uh, how about another song, guys? Yes, it's a, uh, it's a, it's playground love. It's a song we, we wrote thirty three percent of it, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the other sixty six percent. It was L, the man. L. Yes. <laughs> school lover and you're my favorite flavor our love is all on my soul you're my playground love yet my hands are shaking Fills my body remains. Times no matter, I'm on fire on this playground. Love, you're the piece of gold. Flushes on my soul, and it 
town anywhere. You're my playground. Beautiful stuff, Playground Love from Phoenix. So four albums in, guys, and, you know, you were joking about this earlier, Toma, but, you know, still nobody quite knows what to make of the band, although you, now you've, you're having this, this great success just writing great songs. It seems like that's at the, at the bottom of it. It's about a great pop song. It seems to me like that. If there is one thing that holds together those four albums and say, what's the common thread here? It seems to me like that, that was the goal. Always write a, a good three, four-minute pop song. Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, we love that this. Uh, we love this format. You know, it's like in poetry. You know, it's a very precise, uh, precise rules. We love rules. <laughs> Just to be when you know the rules, you you know how to break the rules. But it seems like the standards are pretty high. So I mean, how does the songwriting work? And is it something that you guys agree on instantly, or are you guys in fist fights by the end of? Uh, <laughs> a process. very very long very organic very mysterious process we sit like that for hours and usually we always have this illusion that we're gonna come come up with a the product of our you know expertise our genius and <laughs> and create a song you know but it never worked like that <laughs> when we do that we always end up with something very uh, normal very boring and what we are expecting you know in this in all this is just this emotion where something uh, alien, you know, something you don't know yet is happens. So we just work and en- work endlessly until this happens. And usually, it's more the product of luck and mistake than uh, of our personal qualities, you know, our personal ge- uh, genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We can, you know, uh, we can do that. So you can tell each other when something's not up to par? Yeah, what's, I think what's interesting is that it only works when we're the four of us. Uh, each member taking separately is is just nothing really interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no no one can write a song on its own. And, and uh, you know, it, there's a whole preparation, which is getting our egos tired, you know, getting our bodies tired, everything. So that you come up with something that, well, there's no calculation. And usually the thing we learned with <clears throat> making a lot of records is that we now we record everything we do. And sometimes we hear something we like and it's only two or three days after. It's, uh, it's, um, so it's a long process. It's not the thing you th- think is interesting when you make it that that's the most interesting. It's the thing that's unfamiliar and alien, yeah, like Bronco said. Mm. Well, you know, for those first three records, uh, at least in America, there was a, a kind of a underground indie buzz. But 
this album, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, is really the breakthrough that's introduced you to to a wider audience here. Was there a particular goal going into making this one that was different from its predecessors, or or what was what what, what were on, what was on your mind when you started uh, working on this one? Well, we we were really confident in the fact that because we wanted to start without a record company and finish without one too, I guess to have a good pressure on to feel like it was the first record again and uh, also we were really confident in the fact that we didn't want to please everyone we always thought that when you want to please everyone you're dead you know there's no Mm. it's it's, uh, and uh, so we made something that that was very you know it felt like a commercial suicide at some point it felt like talking about friends list Doing Love Like a Sunset, a very long instrumental song, and things we thought it would talk to only people that were hardcore fans, and but we knew we could reach them because of internet and every, and mm-hmm. everything. And then it's when we did a record that's that was supposed to talk to the less people that that <laughs> that it talked to the most. So uh, for for us, we we took it as the best. You know, it, it was such a great surprise, and it was such a yeah, it came out of nowhere, really. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, I wanted to get back, Thomas, you mentioned that song like Love Like a Sunset, which is actually a two-part uh, song kind of in the middle of the record. And to some people, I think it might have been like a, a kind of an odd move. And I saw it once I started listening to the album as an album as opposed to just a collection of songs it made a lot of sense to me and it occurred to me that you guys are making albums you're still making albums here we are in the mp3 download a, a song you know at a time age and this is meant to be heard as an album and I saw that as sort of the mid-album palate cleanser the kind of you know end of side one let's yeah. we're going to side two exactly. uh, that's so, what I was saying earlier about yeah, creating that space yeah. what a great headphone song you know yeah. it's like Roxy Music Avalon, or or uh, or a lot of Ayers' best moments. So that that's yeah, just you could you couldn't be more right because we <clears throat> Avalon was one of the references. I mean, at some point I forgot that Roxy Music had made a record called Avalon, and I came to see them, and I said, "I have the album title. It's Avalon," <laughs> and everyone laughed. And I was like, "Oh, fuck, it exists." <laughs> All the best so- titles are taken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but yeah, Love Like a Sunset was. We grew up with, uh, we still think when we do the track listing, we still think in terms of vinyls. And we also like records that are really short, which was a problem when we st- when we did our first and second record, the record company was so upset that that our records were so short. And, you know, it was the time where it was endless hip hop records with 23 mm-hmm. tracks and, and 20 interludes and, and yeah. um, skits. And so you guys don't have any skits in between your... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So yes, yeah, it's uh, we really think in terms of albums, and I think it's not, it's not a contradiction because you can still make, you know, I like when a record is very you can identify a song really strongly. It belongs to a family of songs. It belongs to this album, but you can listen to it separately, and uh, and it it takes the whole thing to another level when you play the whole record, and it's it's really like storytelling. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Uh, how about another song, guys? Yes. So it's 1901. <clears throat>
1901. I love that song. We love this band, Phoenix, <laughs> on Sound Opinions. Who's the boy you like the most? Is it teasing you with underage? Gentlemen, Thomas, Deck, Laurent, Christian, thank you so much for coming into Sound Opinions. Thank you. Thank you. To listen to Phoenix's entire live performance in our studio, visit soundopinions.org. And to comment on our conversation with the band or share any of your critical opinions on the air, call our hotline at 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our review of Phoenix's Mentors, Air, the new album, as well as my Desert Island Jukebox pick. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is the song Love from the band Air. French pop, the theme of today's show in, in some ways, Jim. Uh, we just had the band Phoenix on. Well, there would be no Phoenix, it could be argued, if there were no Air. When this band emerged in 1998, French pop was sort of a punchline. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of great bands out of France at that time, and perhaps the entire legacy of French pop could be summed up by Serge Gainsbourg. Other than that, there were really no internationally famous French pop acts of that stature. Air changed all of that with uh, their 1998 debut album called Moon Safari. It harkened back to an earlier era of pop music, specifically the synth pop, the early synth pop of, of the 70s, the one that preceded those techno bands of, of the early 80s. And on top of that, those androgynous French vocals. 
Uh, you weren't sure if they were boys or girls singing. Uh, you weren't really sure what they were singing about because of those thick French accents. But it was beautiful and alluring nonetheless. And then they followed that up in 2000 with the soundtrack for Sofia Coppola's movie, The Virgin Suicides. So we had the first major pop act out of France with those two records. Since then, we have seen major success by bands like Daft Punk, Cassius, Phoenix, M83, uh, Mellow, Justice, but Air continues on. They have a new album out called Love 2, their sixth album. It is a more insular effort. Uh, Dunkel and Godin primarily working on their own with the assistance from drummer Joey Warnker, who was uh, accompanying them on their previous tour. We're going to review the record in a second, but uh, let's play a track from it first. Do the Joy from Love 2 by Air on Sound Opinions. Joy by Air from album number six, Love 2, which is uh, numeral two, pun there, Greg. Love 2? Mm-hmm. Love to talk about Air. I have really enjoyed this band from the beginning with Moon Safari. It can be argued that they have never topped that 1998 masterpiece, although The Virgin Suicides in 2000, that soundtrack, was really, really good. I say that because I am disappointed by this record. I think Air is losing steam, and they're doing it fast. There are only so many times you can do that retro-futuristic analog synthesizer drone with the washes and the bleeps and the echoed guitar and that, you know, French Serge Gainsbourg on Quaaludes vocal style, (laughs) all of which are great things, don't get me wrong, but I got five albums with that already, and I would like to hear something different from Air, especially when you are seeing such innovation from Daft Punk such spirited jubilation from Phoenix, you know, it's like, hey, guys, what else you got for me? You kind of let me down this time. I think the best parts are the instrumentals. I love Eat My Beat, and I love Tropical Disease. But otherwise, I'm really disappointed in this record. 
I am surprised to hear you say that, Mr. DeRigatis, because I think this is their strongest record since that debut album that we all love so much. Um, I'm sure they're tired of hearing how great Moon Safari is. I'm not prepared to say this album is as good as that. But I think song for song, this is one of those albums that I can't stop listening to. I'd maybe toss one or two of them, but overall I think the melodies are really great. One of the things I think that pop music has lost over the last decade or so is that ability to sort of traffic in the worlds of subtlety and nuance. And these guys are all about subtleties and nuance. It's not about heavy drum beats. It's not about groove so much as these really refined melodies playing out over these uh, beautiful arrangements. In this case, it's a little bit more sparse uh, than their previous records, which I like. I think they went overboard with the last couple of records and trying to orchestrate what they do so well. I love it when they keep it simple. I love it when they sound like their name. Air, this band should sound like Whiskey, air, like willowy. a breeze uh, blowing you along, along the road. I can imagine you just standing there, Mr. Dury Goddess, with your, with your French sleeves billowing in the air <laughs> as this album is playing. That is the picture I have in my head. Try to picture that, listeners. I don't know what you're tripping on over but, there. Uh, I, I like this band. This one let me down. It's, it, I'm not going to say it's a trash it because there are, are some good moments. It's a burn it <laughs> record, but I, I don't know what you're high no, on you gotta, there, you got to buy it, Jim. you got to buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away, the island lost the sea. Now I'm stranded on my own. Stranded far from home. Come on. Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Stranded out of the home. Stranded, yeah, I'm on my own. As frequently as we can on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island and pop a quarter in the jukebox and play a song that he cannot live without. And Jim, this week it's your turn. Greg, I'm going to go in a completely different direction, inspired by a conversation I had this weekend, a long and loving conversation about the uh, New York band The Fugs. You know, I just I just wrote the Connective Tissue essay in this Velvet Underground art book that came out, and, and uh, this guy who happens to be a reverend, <laughs> a man mm-hmm. of the cloth, was like, how could you write about the Velvet Underground and not mention The Fugs? And, and of course he was right, so now I'm going to make up for that by giving The Fugs their due. We are hearing the term freak folk an awful lot these days. People like Devandra Banhart, who is now up to selling out, you know, pretty good-sized theaters Mm -hmm. across the country. He's on tour right now. Uh, Grizzly Bear, to some extent, comes from that scene. They're going to be guests on Sound Opinions in a couple of weeks. You know, the term seems mislabeled to me because Banhart, Grizzly Bear, anybody who's being called freak folk ain't half as freaky as what (laughs) the fugs were. 1965 on the Lower East Side of Manhattan when it was still a dangerous place Mm -hmm. to visit. The folk scene was happening in Greenwich Village. These guys were folkies marginally, but they were a lot freakier. They were experimenting with everything coming from the beat scene of the 50s. Ed Sanders, the poet who, uh, who wrote a wonderful book about the beat generation late 50s in in uh, in new york called uh, tales of the beat generation would go on to write the ultimate book about the manson family tuli kupferberg peter stamfel mm-hmm. who would go on to make music with uh, the great playwright sam shepherd in the holy modal rounders these guys would get together in basements in the village and drink gallons of wine <laughs> and make this incredibly crude but wonderful proto-punk folk music, where the lyrics are smart. Sometimes they're putting William Blake or uh, Augustus Swinburne to music. At other times, they're singing about 
a lot of stuff I can't even repeat. Yeah, they could be kind of sexist boneheads, but, you know, these are, are smart poets, and they're kind of laughing about the idea of of orgies and drugs. It's it's wonderful good time stuff, in other words. <laughs> the uh, They're going to celebrate their 45th anniversary in a couple of months, and they are reissuing a lot of those early albums as well as one final album, Kupferberg is now 86. Wow. He recorded this. They're making sure to say this is the Fugs' final album. Mm-hmm. They are probably not going to have one more in them. But I'm going to play something. The first three or four albums all came from one marathon speed fuel 12-hour recording session, mm. uh, which is absolutely nuts. But here is a song that came from that mess. It is called, appropriately enough, Frenzy by the Fugs on Sound Opinions. Uh, uh. Yes, the almighty Fugs. Frenzy from the Fugs' second album. How can you top that? That's just great stuff. I don't know if we can, Jim. Uh, we're going to try next week, though. Halloween's coming up. We're going to play some of the scariest rock songs of all time. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Mary Gaffney recorded Phoenix for us. The show was produced, as always, by our diligent, luminescent team of Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia is not French, but some people have said he has a Napoleon complex. <laughs> On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. Come on and uh, answer your phone. Answer your phone. Pick up the receiver. I know that 
messages. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Bart from Greensboro, North Carolina. And I just got done listening to your Weird Instruments show. And I had to let you all know about this band in Greensboro called Invisible. They make some of their own instruments, um, one of which being a typewriter that plays piano. The end result is a piano, which I guess isn't that bizarre, but it's how it's played that is weird. The typewriter, every letter on the typewriter plays a note on the piano, and there just happen to be 88 characters on the typewriter as there are 88 keys on a piano. The finishing touch on this crazy instrument is that there's a small camera mounted on the typewriter pointed at the text, and then the text is projected on a, on a screen or a wall. So you can read what's being typed as you hear the sound that the typewriter is producing by playing the piano. The instrument is called the electric piano. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Keep up the good work. Love the show. Bye. Hi, this is Laura calling from Boston, and I was just disappointed that you guys fell into the trap of taking Muse too seriously. I mean, I understand if you didn't like the resistance because it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous, but I think they know that. If you look at the liner notes, for example, on the song I Belong to You, they talk about the uh, bass clarinet solo, quote, which we wanted to sound like a theme tune from a children's TV program featuring teddy bears in a garden. So I think if you get clued in, you get the joke. Um, And so I'm just disappointed that you didn't get the joke because I think that's all part of the fun. I mean, it's uh, sort of the insanity of the music matches the insanity of Matt Bellamy's conspiracy theories. But as my boyfriend said, until they headline a concert to raise money for resistance against the aliens who've taken over the bodies of our leaders, I think it's fair to assume that it's all tongue-in-cheek. So I think it's easier to appreciate the glory of Muse, if you understand, it's all a big joke to them, too. Thanks. I test every Hi guys, I just heard you uh, cackle over Bob Dylan singing in Latin over the radio. I don't know why I keep listening to you guys. Every week you do something to amaze me, uh, me. Uh, but you did get one thing right. Um, Dylan is the inappropriate alcoholic uncle who shows up family dinner pinching everybody in the bum. Uh, but that's why we love him. He's uh, always entertaining. He once described himself as nothing but a song and dance man. And, uh, and that's why we love him. So maybe he doesn't have a crooner's voice. He doesn't have the pronunciation of some UFC classics professor that you guys are used to hearing. Uh, but still, uh, you're completely wrong on this. So uh, I'll keep listening and uh, keep getting rage. Thanks, guys.
To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.